Welcome to Vision of Zion. The date today is May the 17th, 2023. With me again is my guest, Sean White. Hello, Sean. Hi, Craig. Good to hear from you this evening. Didn't know if we could squeeze this in today, but we want to get through this book, don't we? Yes. <laughs> book of Isaiah, chapter 13. Got a few notes, and we've got some information also prepared for Isaiah, chapter 14. We've already done chapter 15. Some of these were out of order, and we're filling in the gaps as we go. But we have a long way to go to go through the entire book. So tell us what this chapter is about, Sean. Well, first off, I just want to say the reason why we want to get through these is because we feel so like there's so much good information that can help so many people in lifting their hearts and their minds. In chapter 13, the day of Yahweh, Yahweh of armies has given power to prepare God's army to take back this world. This is an overview of a three and a half years as God allows the wicked to be killed, while at the same time readying his army. God's army will take control of America back from the king of Assyria. That's all good news. So let us begin with verse 1, reading from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Babylon here represents a type of people who are in bondage to sin. They typically choose evil. The people of Babylon seek only for the riches of the world to lift themselves up in pride over others. They do not seek to help others as Christ would. I'm going to ask some questions to read emphasize this at the end of our discussion of each verse or as your notes are done we're going to go back and have a discussion so just i've got questions about babylon or some statements <clears throat> i won't say that again verses two and three set up a banner on the bare mountain lift up your voice to them wave your hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles i have commanded my consecrated ones yes i have called my mighty men for my anger even my proudly exulting ones. Setting up a banner or ensign upon a bare mountain is referring to the evil one. Bare or barren is the opposite of fertile mountain. God has called his consecrated leaders, as we saw in Isaiah 11, and the final few servants to prune the vineyard one last time, as noted in Jacob 5, verses 70 through 72. Verse 4, the noise of a multitude is in the mountains as of a great people. The noise of an uproar of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together. Yahweh of armies is mustering the army for the battle. Yahweh of armies is mustering a battle, is mustering an army for the battle, assembling God's army for war, if you will. You can hear the multitude of God's remnant in the mountains who have gathered from many nations yahweh of armies is readying them for war against the king of assyria who has invaded them all right making a note here let's go to verses five and six they come from a far country from the uttermost part of heaven even yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land wail 
for the day of Yahweh is at hand. It will come as destruction from the mighty, excuse me, from the Almighty. All those who have passed on before us in righteousness assemble to support us here on earth. God will stop at nothing to take back this world from the wicked. The battles will be historic, as in the Bible or the Book of Mormon. Hmm. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and everyone's heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and sorrows will seize them. They will be in pain like a woman in labor. They will look in amazement at one another, and their faces will be faces of flame. The wicked who have fought against Zion will be afraid, for God is with his righteous people, and it clearly shows. The countenance of the people fighting with God to restore righteousness will be glowing, and the wicked will tremble and quake in fear. This is a beautiful thing as there's just light emulating from these people as they're ready to go forth, and uh, their countenance is just glowing which is opposite of the dark, dreadful countenance of the others. Verse 9. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners out of it. Once God sets his hand to take back this world from the wicked, nothing will stop him. The grand cities, the worldly things people have built up as they have oppressed others, are utterly destroyed. Verse 10. For the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going out, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. In the last battle, the earth will be thrown out of its, bat its orbit. The poles of the earth will be reversed. Verse 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogance of the proud to cease and will humble the arrogance of the terrible. By the time God is done in this day of vengeance, there will be no worldly things left to take pride in or to have, you know, I want to, anyway, we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> Verse 12, I will make people more rare than fine gold, even a person than the pure gold of Ophir. There will be very few people left. The gold from Ophir, as stated in Jacob, <clears throat> sorry, as stated in Job 28, verse 16, was a very pure and refined gold. It was thought to have been used in King Solomon's temple. Verse 13, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place in Yahweh of armies' wrath, and in the day of his fierce anger. God will make the heavens temple, and earth will be shaken out of its orbit. It will be a similar experience as when his son died on the cross. It's the only way on this earth could be sanctified enough for his son to return. All right, Here's, between 13 and 14, you note there's a change. So why don't you mention this note you've given me? Here is the mirroring point of this chapter. Isaiah is referring back to the beginning of the chapter to emphasize the utter disregard for life that the king of Assyria's army has for those that did not gather as the servant suggested. 
Okay, let's read that verse, verse 14. And they will be like a hunted gazelle and like sheep that no one gathers. They will each turn to their own people and will each flee to their own land. The king of Assyria, the barren mountain, will hunt down those that did not gather, as the servant suggested. Many of these people will run and try to return home to their families in the Rocky Mountains. This is from the viewpoint of the promised land. Okay. Verses 15 and 16. Everyone who is found will be thrust through. Everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, and their houses will be ransacked and their wives raped. That's some strong language. It is very strong language. When the king of Assyria's army made from the alliance of several countries come to America, the promised land. They are ruthless upon all those who have not gathered to places of refuge. They have no respect or regard for anyone, as they are a godless people. Verses 17 and 18. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Their bows will dash the young men in pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb, and their eyes will not spare children. Very strong language again. Yeah. Here Isaiah is showing that uh, the king of Assyria's army has no regard for wealth, even if the remaining people were to offer silver or gold to preserve their lives, they are killed ruthlessly. Verse 19. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be like when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This crushing defeat of Babylon, <clears throat> excuse me, this crushing defeat of Babylon is likened to when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the people who put worldly things above serving as Christ would, is overwhelming and thorough. Verse 20. It will never be inhabited, neither will it be lived in from generation to generation. The Arabian will not pitch a tent there, neither will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. This promise of destroying the wicked, this promise of destroying the wicked and wiping out their cities, is the same as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the place where the Tower of Babel was built. These areas were never inhabited again. And finally, verses 21 and 22. But wild animals of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of jackals. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will frolic there. Wolves will cry in their fortresses, and jackals in the pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Once the once opulent cities and thriving metropolises are desolate and filled with wild animals, never to be inhabited again. Well, Sean, a lot of information here. Much of it is a, a, a repeat of what we've already reviewed, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just kind of emphasizing things in a different way. He wants us to know how thorough this is and how that there's just no stopping 
the king of Assyria once he comes in until, and we don't talk about this in here as much, but when he starts to attack, the righteous people are close to attacking the cities of refuge that have been set up. Then the tide turns and God gives him power because he will not let the righteous that can hear his voice clearly. Now, I keep using this word that can hear his voice clearly. And what I'm trying to say here is those that can receive revelation on their own, that don't rely upon others for their testimony or for hearing God's, what the Holy Ghost is trying to speak to them. So let me tell you uh, what I get out of this overall picture that, that uh, and, and the way you interpreted it, which seems to me to be really uh, fits the verses. That is that uh, the Lord's wrath is really thorough what he intends to do once he makes his uh once he gathers his army and he begins to push back the army it's it's very thorough and i think that as we review what the king of assyria is going to do we see the justice in it yeah you know we see how brutal the king of assyria is in the second part um they're not killing for money. They're not killing and destroying for any purpose that would, let's say, normally be a grounds for a battle or or to take possession of land. It's just to get, it's genocide. Yeah. And they don't regard, take regard for children or women. And so once we go back and revisit what this army is doing, we understand why the Lord is taking such a, a firm hand in the first part of Isaiah chapter 13. You know, one interesting point that I gathered from this, and I love this part, is that they come from the utmost parts of heaven. Even Yahweh, meaning even God comes to fight this battle, that he doesn't stay away. And this is, to me, scenes that I saw in the Battle of Armageddon, that it was not only a battle of physical beings, but it was fought in the skies above us, and it was a fearsome battle. I've never seen anything like this in my life, of the scenes in the Battle of Armageddon, as both sides of the veil are fighting. This reminds me of verses we've reviewed before, but I'd like to go again to <clears throat> DNC 103, where the Lord says, you know, in the days when they were in the wilderness, uh, the children of Israel were, there was an angel that oversaw their travel. But the Lord says, in your day, uh, this is verse 19. He said, therefore, this is Doctrine and Covenants, section 103, verse 19. Therefore, let not your hearts faint, for I say not unto you, as I said unto your fathers, mine angels shall go up before you, but not my presence. But I say unto you, verse 20, mine angels shall go up before you and also my presence. And in yeah. time ye shall possess the goodly land. So we can take this literally. Yeah. This is not uh, metaphorical. The Lord is going to be there. And that's different than what happened in the time of the children of Israel. And as well, you pointed before, they were given the opportunity to have the Savior or the Lord uh, to, to be in his presence 
yeah. but they they refuse to to take that offer up but it's going to be a different time it's going to be he's going to be there that is amazing to me to think about that and there it is in in, in section 103 all right it's such exciting times to look at because of the gathering of both sides and how righteous the people will be above other times so we have more wicked and more righteous it'll be it's so choice to be able to live during this time and to be a part of all this all right let's go back to verse one i would like to cover some things here so babylon as we remember babylon was you know the pride of the world this is the place where the the Jews from the kingdom of Judah were taken around 587 BC when Jerusalem was was on the wrong side of history. They decided to make alliances and pay tribute to Egypt, and the Babylonian leaders came down once and said, "No, you're picking the wrong side. You got to pay your tribute to us." Right. And and they they installed Zedekiah as the king. And Zedekiah decided to disregard that, and he went and continued to support the Egyptians. They chose the wrong side. Jeremiah was warning them the whole time. So yeah. they come down, and they completely wipe out and and bring them back to Babylon. My question here is, I mean, I've seen these, these programs about the beauty of Babylon. It was a massive city, beautiful architecture, beautiful gates. Um, seemingly Gardens. impenetrable, right? There was no way to conquer the city except what? They drained and rerouted the river and came through because the river ran through the city. Uh, and Babylon was, they did permit, under, I think under King Darius, 70 years later to return to Jerusalem. But my question for you was, uh, you had mentioned to me one time, or maybe more than once on this program, that when Brigham Young brought the saints across the plains to utah which what is now utah that only a fraction of the members of the church went with him is that correct yeah that's correct uh, only a third actually came with him and they broke up into i was trying to think 28 or 29 different factions of lds that decided to stay in different parts or start their own churches but this is the same pattern that we saw in Egypt when uh, the Jews talk about this a lot in theirs that only a third left with Moses. And um, we see the number, the third talked about in the pre-existence and different things. In fact, at one time in the pre-existence, we only had one third on the righteous side. And that's why we had such strong missionary efforts that culminated in a war uh, to bring back a third that had chosen to go the other way so this third is huge significance so i'm wondering then when the jews were permitted to return to jerusalem seven years later did they all go back or did some of them linger in babylon that's a good question i don't know the answer to that but it's a good question yeah i don't know the answer either but i'm going to suspect that since babylon becomes the metaphor for the world right in the book of right. revelation the lord keeps saying you know get out of babylon right and i can only imagine that uh people who were there for 70 years got pretty comfortable living there and i'll bet they all didn't go back to this uh i mean let's face it jerusalem had been destroyed i don't know what there was much to go back to they had to rebuild 
I'm I'm assuming and I'm guessing that a, a number of them stayed in Babylon, which is why the Lord keeps saying later, go you out from Babylon, because I don't know what your Babylon was taken out. I haven't paid attention enough to the history line, but sometime after the Jews returned, um, they were destroyed. And I'm sure those who were who were left, who stayed, decided to stay there, were probably, you know, either enslaved or destroyed also. This ties in very much to what I saw when the servant was announced and by Heavenly Father, this is my servant and he will, Yahweh of armies, as we're, the Dead Sea Scrolls is referring to, as he is announced by Heavenly Father and made known to the whole world, he invites the people to come into a place of refuge with him. And it's so interesting that, you know, their things are bad, but they're not, you know, the King of Assyria hasn't come in yet. And many people want to stay in their homes and stay within their cities and everything else because they have built up so many worldly things that they think they've done it all with their own hands and that they have no, you know, they, they just can't give up these worldly things that they've acquired. But later on, after the king of Assyria comes in, there are many that in their last reluctance pack up their cars, put everything that they can possibly put in that car and try to make it across the United States to families and things in the Rockies. And, you know, some of them make it and some of them have to spend the winter out on the plains and then come in later because of the early winter that comes in. So um, very, very interesting similarities. You know, on a spiritual level, um, sometimes we don't realize how much or how good we have it until the spirit is withdrawn. And yeah. it is something that I think we really take for granted. I remember when I was a missionary, I was in Italy on my mission. And I remember a very distinct difference between how I felt in Italy versus in America. And uh, I later, not much later, but I remember meeting a man who uh, was talked about how I'm not sure how to say this exactly. I don't want to make it sound macabre, but he was saying that, you know, there's a certain spirit that hangs over areas where there's been a lot of death and destruction. And, uh, you know, Europe's been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. And there just was a feeling, I don't know how to describe, you know, a promised land and how it feels lighter and brighter compared to a place that doesn't feel that way but you know coming back to america after two years it at that time it was really a relief i mean i could feel it felt different if the energy i i think it was more than just coming home you know it just felt better and uh i can only imagine that also uh when the spirit leaves there's just places where the spirit is Un, more unrestrained and there's places in it in italy and in rome where i should have felt it i mean this is considered the epicenter of christianity but it didn't feel uh like that uh, there was a saying uh by people in europe that said that uh you know spain is more is more catholic than the pope and in some ways the farther you got away from the epicenter People claim that it felt better, but, you know, being in Rome, there were issues. <laughs> I can say it just didn't feel right all the time. So I don't know, just an observation. 
you know, I've had friends come back from overseas deployments and uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff, and they said that when they got back and felt the spirit of America, that some of them went to their knees and kissed the ground or said, Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that I live here and be can be back home with my family and stuff, you know. And I've also, as I've traveled in doing stainless steel work and stuff, there are times in cities where the spirit was totally withdrawn in California. I mean, it was fearful to go out at night. It was fearful to go to some parts of cities to get gas and things. And we were told to leave right away because our lives were in danger and uh, we didn't feel safe. But there was just so much going on there that you can feel the spirit. I, I've known people that have gone into different places and were great sexual sin was going on and things and they they just could not handle the chaos in their minds and the chaos of this that they felt this overwhelming thing like i need to get out of here um i know of a man who robbed a this is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum but he had robbed a bank across from temple square zion's bank and uh, he ran to temple square to try to hide from the police and his feet began to burn and he could not stay there. And a voice said to him, get off this holy ground. And that's kind of the opposite spectrum, <laughs> but um, very interesting story. Well, in verse two, uh, verses two and three, you make reference to uh, Jacob chapter five, where we have um, there because he's calling on mighty men and, his, and to, uh, to fight on his behalf. And the consecrated ones, it says. And I did want to read from Jacob chapter 5 because we made reference to it over the past few chapters. And I think it's really important that we go back and revisit the uh, Jacob chapter 5 in the Book of Mormon. Remember, Jacob, brother to Nephi, younger and outlived Nephi, quotes from, I think it's Zenus or Zenus, yeah, and Zenus. his parable of the vineyard. And by verse 49 in Jacob 5, the Lord is fed up. He's so tired of not being able to get the, the vineyard to bear good fruit. We might remember he had these natural trees. He took the branches of the natural trees. He grafted them into the nethermost parts of the vineyard, which means they were scattered or they were put in other trees and they began to bear fruit. And there was, then there began to, began to be wild fruit and natural fruit. It's just a the Lord, the, the Lord of the vineyard was ready to just give up. And I'll read the words exactly how it says it here. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, and it is singular. It's interesting to point this out throughout the entire story in the book of Jacob 5. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've read people say the servant is the servants of God. But anyway, it's in singular form. So just point that out. He says, let us go and hoe down or hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard for I have done all. What could I have done more for my vineyard? So the Lord is saying, I'm done. But behold, verse 50, those servants said unto the servant, the Lord of the vineyard, spare it a little longer. I mean, can you imagine uh, the audacity of, of the boots on the ground saying to the Lord, no, let's, let's give it another chance. And the Lord responds and says in verse 51, Yea, I will spare it a little longer. For it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. I find this so, just on a level, 
that the Lord would listen to the servant and would agree. He didn't say, don't you dare say anything about this. I'm done. No, the Lord wanted the servant, wanted his uh, people to exercise a little more faith. And I, it was a, I don't know if it's a test, uh, Sean, but I find this very interesting. The Lord is responsive to right. this, uh, uh, what's the word? to this faithful request, I guess we should say. And then we go, I'm going to skip, and the Lord has a plan of how they're going to fix it all. And so we're going to do this regrafting in of the natural branches back in the trees. We're going to prune and dung, and we're going to give it our all so that he can have joy in the fruit in verse 60. <clears throat> and so in verse 61 he, the lord says wherefore go to and call servants that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard that we may prepare the way that i that i may bring forth again the natural fruit which natural fruit is good and the most precious above all other fruit so let's let's get to it and and i submit and I, i'm sure sean would agree that's the period of time that we're in right now right in this in this uh, parable the lord is trying to have a great harvest wherefore let us go to and labor with our might this last time for behold the end draweth nigh and this is the last time that i shall prune my vineyard and then he gives instructions again and uh, they're going to prune and dung for the end draweth nigh and then i'm going to get to i think it's verse 70 i'm going to skip here he gives them all these instructions how they're going to make this great harvest. And, uh, you know, this remnant of Israel plays into this story very clearly. So here we yeah. go. Uh, verse 70. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant, and the servant went and did as the Lord had, uh, Lord had commanded him and brought other servants, and they were few. Right. So not many responded to the call, or there weren't many that could be called upon. So... You look at our church today, <clears throat> the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, we claim, and I believe it 100%. Uh, and our 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 footprint is quite small in the world. We're about the same size as the Jewish population, around 15, 16 million in the world. Uh, we're like, you know, less than, a, yeah. I think it's a tenth of 1%. In the United States states alone our population is 1.7 percent of the total population of the united states that's that's few and that's the that's the gross number that's not the active numbers that's just the total number of people right. who've been baptized into the church so it's a small it's a small footprint <clears throat> so we are few in number and yet we are called to labor with our might because the season speedily cometh and so they do. They work, and guess what? They obeyed the commandments of the Lord in all things. And the big natural fruit began to appear again in the vineyard. The wild branches were plucked off and cast away. So this is part of that process we're reading about here with, I'm sure, the king of Assyria is playing his role, the Lord's playing his role. And, uh, and then finally, go ahead, please. 
the, the interesting thing to me is that no time does he destroy the fruit yet at this point. He's always destroying the branches or the bad branches that bought, brought bad fruit. Now, the fruit being us people and everything, he's going back to take care of those that steered the people wrong, that steered them on the wrong path. He doesn't disturb the fruit. He doesn't blame the fruit as of yet. Hmm. So we, I could read more, but I'll leave it for you all to read. But finally, he does it, and uh, he finally says at the very end, and when the time cometh, this is verse 77, that evil fruit shall again come into my vineyard, then I will cause the good and the bad to be gathered. And the good will I preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast away into its place. And then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. That's at the end of the millennium, I'm, I'm assuming? Yeah, that's the way I've taken it for a long time, is that very final last judgment scene. Because when and the evil fruit begins to appear again, it's going to be after the millennium, when we have the battle of, what is that, Gog and Magog at the very right. end? Okay. And so we can see here at this point that where he's taking the fruit also, not just the branches, but the fruit, and okay. destroying the fruit with it, the, the bad fruit. But um, I kept thinking as you were reading these verses, or the interpretation of these verses, I kept thinking of how many of these hymns we sing in church uh, that apply to these verses. Uh, the Lord is making an army. We are all enlisted till the conflict is o'er. You know, there's all these right. images that the early saints, when they wrote these hymns, they they capture the essence of the book of Isaiah and these other scriptures that talk about it's, it, is, it is a war. It is a war between good and evil. And we're being enlisted until the conflict is over. Many um, places within the scrolls as I'm going through them and stuff, it's written as if it were a poem. Um, which is interesting um, that they're phrasing things in a way that could be sung. Well, this other phrase here in verses 5 and 6, they're coming from a far country. Is this not part of the gathering of the ten tribes? Is this not part of the highway being cast up out of the midst of the deep that we read about in the Doctrine and Covenants and also in the book of Isaiah where they can gather together? This is not, right. this is a multinational uh, counterattack. But we also see them coming. I see them coming from Europe. I see them coming from Africa. I see them coming from South America. Um, the islands, they all come and gather together for safety and refuge against the storm that's coming. And uh, so, you know, even the 10 tribes, and then, of course, the, the latter part, as we get closer, the city of Enoch and city of Melchizedek that have joined together come down, which is the uttermost parts of heaven or the furthest away to join us in battle. The next verse is 7 and 8, uh, where their hands will be feeble and their heart, everyone's hearts will melt. Uh, it made me think of another song, We Think to Your God for a Prophet, and the line is, The wicked who fight against Zion will surely be smitten at last. And that certainly fits these verses. It's uh, the Lord is not going to allow it to go on. He's, he's got to protect his people. Um, all right. And then verses, verse 10, the stars 
will not give their light. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Uh, I'm assuming that this is a result of uh, um, dust or or smoke I, um, from volcanic I saw this as being or, connected to being thrown out of the orbit. So as we are thrown out of our orbit and things toward these last scenes and the poles are reversed, that um, it becomes darkened. Of course, there are scenes, too, where I was with the Savior and we're looking upon the king of Assyria's army and the ten tribes are about to come in across the valley and the skies are very dark and they cannot use their satellite phones to communicate and satellite radios because the sky is so darkened with uh, ash and so forth from volcanoes during the time. So I think, that, you know, we've got different time periods. So... I, I grabbed my book that has a uh, in its appendix the vision of Charles D. Evans, the night vision, and he says um, I won't go over all the gory details, but he does say in other parts of the world voluminous flames emanating from vast fires rolled with fearful blood velocity destroying life and property in their destructive course the seal of the dread menace of despair was stamped on every human visage men fell exhausted appalled and trembling every element of nature was a demon of wrathful fury dense clouds blacker than midnight darkness whose thunders reverberated with intonations which shook the earth obscured the sunlight darkness reigned unrivaled and supreme um so there was this period and also in the book of joel chapter two it's a little bit different than it says here and you can tell me if this is a different uh time period um or not this is uh joel chapter two i'm going to skip down to verse 20 i think it's 22 um let's see here Oh, it's 28 through 32 as now. I just remember here. So it says, uh, verse 30, And I will shew wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Verse 31, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So, but there's there's hope and there's light uh, coming quickly after that. Um, okay, let's see. Any comments on that? See, in the Book of Mormon, right before Christ came, the three days of darkness there, which happened right at the time of his crucifixion, where the earth shook and trembled, you know, too. So this cleansing, that this darkness and the things surrounding this darkness um, are very key in preparing the way or sanctifying the earth in a way for the Savior to come in his glory, because here he is in a glorified state of resurrection, and we are not in that same state. We need to be raised, or the whole, everything needs to be raised to be in his presence. Again, going to verse now 13, we see this, I see this pattern uh, where um, people are, are fearful of the righteous, and they want to go and stay away from them. So there is safety and places to go, right? Yeah, um, that 
they are pulled away. I mean, there's different scenes throughout the Bible, uh, especially with the Israelites coming forward and stuff, that when they were in righteous, he really protected them. He provided for um, their needs, whether it be quails coming, whether it be manna coming, whether it be water. And in the book of Esther, it even talks about, the Lord says, and I did fall a tree to make their water sweet. And uh, yet they still did not thank me or give gratitude to me, and they still turned away from me, which is interesting. But it's just over and over again now. I love to think about Joan of Arc, and as she fought with that army there, and uh, the men did not fight on the Sabbath one time, and they all partook of the sacrament in front of the other army, and they became so afraid of them because they knew God was with them because they didn't fight on the Sabbath, and they partook of the sacrament. I would like to refer to Enoch specifically now. I've been in referring to him and the kind of power that he was given because he followed the Lord's will. And it was time for the Lord to protect his people. To me, there are striking parallels between all of these descriptions in Enoch. So I'm going to read specifically now from the book of Moses, chapter 7, in the Pearl of Great Price. And Enoch was called at the age of 65. He said he was a lad. I take great uh, comfort in that, that I think <laughs> like you're a lad at 65. That's not too far away from me. But let's read uh, what happens. It says, uh, and it came to pass that Enoch, this is verse 12, chapter 7. Enoch continued to call upon all the people, save it were the people of Canaan, to repent. And so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness. And all nations feared greatly, so powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of the language which God had given him. There also came up a land out of the depth of the sea. See the parallels here? And so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God, that they fled and stood afar off and went upon the land which came up out of the depth of the sea. Uh, and it says, the giants of the land also stood afar off, and there went forth the curse upon all people that fought against God. And that, and this is where I hope everybody takes solace, right here in this verse. And from that time forth, there were wars and bloodshed among them, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Uh, and what we've been talking about is the Lord is going to be with his people and they're going to dwell in righteousness. The fear of the Lord, this is verse 17, was upon all nations. So great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. And the Lord blessed the land and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places and did flourish. And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. And then Enoch goes out and continues to preach. So they built that a is, city called the City of Holiness, even Zion. That is the key point right here of one heart and one mind. Um, that energy that is given off when we join in one heart and one mind, even at times when we sing hymns or the times when we go and see a pageant uh, that is lifting us and helping us to join together. Um, we are of one heart and one mind, and we're being lifted. And that energy is so special. Um, 
I've had many experiences where I've seen angels going or ancestors going in between the people at pageants, whispering things into others' ear because they were so teachable at that moment. And I could hardly focus on the pageant. And I'm <clears throat> in my mind like, how can we create more of these events? And I'd like to go back for a second too that I saw in my experience uh, Enoch and you know when he moved the mountain <clears throat> and these were huge people compared to him but he had this knowledge and this comfort from knowing adam and a great you know like a grandfather of his great grandfather and the peace that adam brought unto him and the strength that he brought and even being small in stature compared to these giants they were so afraid when he moved the mountain that they really stayed a far distance off, and he was able to move his people in safety. Once again, the Lord protected those people and looked after them so that they could safely go away. This ideal of Zion and what Enoch created <clears throat> and the power and protection that, Lord, that the Lord gave him and his people uh, is the whole reason that I named this podcast series Vision of Zion, because this is what we are working towards this is what we can have this is not uh, a dream this is reality and even with all the wickedness going on this is what the lord did with enoch and he has promised to do the same with us and not only that but we're going to have this gathering with the 10 tribes and others called out as you mentioned from all nations and enoch is going to return Correct. with his people so that's all yeah. coming together, and we get to be a part of that. That's what we're trying to focus on. We have to recognize that there's going to be sin all around us. But in these kinds of situations, the power of the Lord, it will be whatever it takes to protect his people. And the Lord says in the Book of Mormon, probably elsewhere, even if I have to call down fire from heaven, right. I will protect my people. If Even if it takes that. Maybe you've seen that, Sean, I don't know, but... I know it's in the scriptures that if it takes that, he will resort to that. It does exactly right. You know, I often think of scenes that I've seen, like with the brother of Jared, Mohan Ray Moriankumar, and they're fa they built these ships and these boats, and they have no idea how they're going to come across in these barges in this darkness, and how that Mohan Ray Moriankumar went upon a beautiful green hill overlooking everything, and it took him a couple of weeks, as I saw it, praying and trying to get straight with the Lord, but he knew in his heart that one way or another, the Lord was going to give him a way to light these ships. He had no idea how the Lord was going to do this or how he was going to prepare them, but this faith that he had was uh, one of the most beautiful scenes that I have ever seen because he was just so he just knew it with all of his heart that the Lord would provide a way. He just had to figure out the obstacles he had to go through and cleaning himself up, so to speak, to have the Lord work before him. You know, it's always <clears throat> the way it happens is never how we envision it the way it should happen. Moses right. apparently had some kind of speech impediment, couldn't talk, had to use a mouthpiece. His brother Aaron uh, apparently Enoch was also slow of speech. When he was called to preach the Lord, he said, Lord, why are you picking on me? You want me to preach? I'm slow of speech. I'm a lad. Why are you doing this? Um, 
you know, even with Enoch, he had him put mud in his eyes and rub it, which is like, oh my gosh, that will totally ruin my eyesight. Instead, it opened the heavens and he could see through the veil and he could see more than he ever saw before. Sometimes the most opposite things that we think of are what he will ask us to do. So the key is that he picks people that he know are going to execute on his plans and are going to exercise the faith. And uh, I really believe that we should be taking these things more literally. Um, these are not these are not metaphorical. These are patterns, types, and shadows of the future. They fit right in with what is being described here. And the key is to be listening to the Spirit and know where to be and where to go. And as these things unfold, if we are in tune, we're not going to be scratching our head wondering it's going to be obvious to us um you know i ran guiding businesses for many years i the first one was about 13 years and i ran marriage retreats and things which i ran outdoor experiences and the thing that i loved was you know no matter how wealthy or how poor the person was in the group when we had a conflict in which everybody had to address the conflict and put in their own two bits to help us get through the situation, a bond was created and a, t a togetherness that you just can't measure any other way. And um, it, it just, it formed so quickly in opposition and that feeling of togetherness, you don't want to leave because it's so beautiful. And we're going to, this situation in front of the world right now as we face this conflict and we unite together as a people of Zion, this feeling, this special feeling of bonding through trials, I wish I could describe it to everybody, but until you've been in those situations, you really can't. Well, I guess we won't really know <clears throat> until we experience it and put our faith in the Lord. Uh, reading about Babylon being destroyed at the level of Sodom and Gomorrah is, to me, very um, Babylon, spiritual Babylon we have today, the 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 world. It's very compelling. I've been watching some of these archaeology shows, some of them about the Bible. <clears throat> they try and go back and see whether these cities that are being described are, are real or if they're imagined. One of them I saw was Jericho, which is, I think, the lowest city on the planet, uh, below sea level, and the walls came tumbling down after they marched a few days around it. They have found these walls and the destruction that occurred. And also there's claims now they have located Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And they have found this layer of uh, black um, residue down several inches from the topsoil where there appeared to have been great destruction of these cities. And they've never been inhabited, I don't think, again. Uh, Babylon, uh, we see a lot of ancient places that no one ever went back to. I've already referred to Alma 16, where Ammonihah was destroyed in one day and became known as the desolation of Nehors. And if you want to read about Nehor and the kind of false doctrine that he preached and introduced that was never extinguished among the people, Go read Alma chapter one, uh, and the the problems that he see that he sowed among the nations that was never eradicated eventually led to their destruction. 
Uh, okay, so let's see here. Um, you know, where I was shown the Tower of Babel, and I saw it as a place like the Gobi Desert is now, you know, I mean, the Gobi Desert is just uninhabitable. There's people that cross it and everything, but there's been no inhabitation upon the Gobi Desert for, you know, they just don't have any record of it. And that's, you know, likened to what I saw where the Tower of Babel was. This final scene where the animals are inhabiting these uh, these former cities of grandeur, you know, makes me, I'm picturing Chernobyl, where we see just in a matter of a few years, where they had that radioactive leak from the Chernobyl nuclear plant that um, melted down and spread um, nuclear waste, radioactivity, we see people returning there and taking photographs of how nature has just taken over the buildings. Once we, it, that's the image I have when I read about uh, yeah, I wildlife coming back into these areas. Coyotes in videos of Chernobyl the other day and how they never dreamed possible this uh, type of bacteria was actually, or um, lichens was in the towers that went up where there's so much radioactive and they're it's actually eating up the radiation um they're just uh nature is taking over hmm. it's a beautiful thing well uh i think we've covered this well um do you have any other final um things you want to say i know this has been kind of dark and everything going up to this we have in chapter 14, we make a huge shift. Um, we have a few tying up scenes here at the end, uh, right? As the Savior is about to come, we're finishing up the temples and things. And then we make a shift in Isaiah here in this chapter to find focus, like short time periods and focusing on one land or one place and going from there. So this overview part has kind of gone away. Well, there's just a major theme here, which is repent, 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 get right with the Lord, prepare yourself, listen to the promptings. There is an escape. We are being refined. Um, not many people will respond, but if they did, we could have a we could have another, you know, Zion like Enoch did. If uh, at whatever size it needs to be, it can be. There's no number given by the Lord. It uh, it just it's not going to be many, apparently, but in a world of billions, what's what's not many? We don't know yet. That's why we're sent out, and we do look at Jacob 5 and say, wow, there was a big harvest. This was not a small harvest. This was a big harvest, but there was a shift, and the shift was remnant Israel's being gathered. Anybody else who will go along with it is going to be part of the party, part of the, this wonderful thing, so... We do want to keep it positive, and you look no further you know, than Moses chapter 7 to see that amidst all this wickedness, the most amazing thing came out. There, Let me read this real quickly in closing on this positive note, Sean. It says, let me see here, get to the verses. It says, um, and after that, and after that, Zion was taken up into heaven. Enoch beheld, and lo, all the nations of the earth were before him. So 
it was lifted up into heaven, this entire city. And if I remember correctly, the same thing happened if you read the Joseph Smith translation of the book of Genesis, I think Melchizedek, his people also reached a level of righteousness that they were so blessed. So, you know, this is these are not uh, fairy tales. They seem like fairy tales, but they're not. If you believe the scriptures and take them literally, um, and we are living in a generation of time when these great events are going to occur. So let's let's all... The other phrase that I see that repeats over and over is his hand is outstretched still, meaning that he's even in the next chapter as we tie up the last scenes before the Savior comes, the arm is still outstretched to bring people in. And I love that theme throughout all this. Well, that triggers another idea here, which is <laughs> from the same, from the same uh, a vision of Charles D. Evans, where he said, darkness reigned unrivaled and supreme. Listen to the other side of this. The light of the gospel, which had but dimly shown because of abomination, now burst forth with the luster that filled the earth. Cities appeared in every direction, one of which in the center of the continent was the embodiment of architectural science after the pattern of eternal perfections whose towers glittered with a radiance emanating from the sparkling of emeralds, rubies, diamonds, and other precious stones set in a canopy of gold and so elaborately and skillfully arranged as to shed forth a brilliancy which dazzled and enchanted the eye, excited admiration and developed a taste for the beautiful beyond anything man had ever conceived. Fountains of crystal water shot upward, their transparent jets, which in the brilliant sunshine formed 10,000 rainbow tints, at once delightful to the eye, gardens, the perfections of whose arrangement confound all our present attempts or genius were bedecked with flowers of varied hue to develop and refine the taste and strengthen a love of these natures for these natures chastest adornments. And this is the part I like here uh, that stands out to me. Schools and universities were erected to which all had access. In the latter, urims were placed for the study of the past present and future, and for obtaining a knowledge of the heavenly bodies and of the construction of worlds and universes. The inherent properties of matter, its arrangements, laws, and mutual relations were revealed and taught and made plain as the primary lesson of a child. The conflicting theories of geologists regarding the formation and age of the earth were settled forever. All learning was based on eternal certainty. Angels brought forth the treasures of heaven which had lain hid in the womb of the dumb and distant past. And it goes on. <laughs> so this is what we're working towards. Isn't that interesting, Craig? I had not heard of that before, but you remember in 2021 when I was given a 1% to 2% chance of living as I was taken in there because I'd been bleeding through an artery in my lung there, had an aneurysm. But I was given the opportunity going there to look into the millennium. I guess I believe it was to give me hope and to give me a drive to keep here. But um, as I looked across the valley and going out of the deal, I saw all these new buildings and they were made of stone that I had never seen before. And they were so exquisitely beautiful with their crystals glowing, these little green olive crystals in the one building and uh, another building out of a sandstone that I'd never seen before. And I was, they were telling me that these were places of learning shown in the future and that if we had gathered all of the learning that we had here on earth and knew it all, it would only be one twentieth of what they would teach us in the future. 
and I saw trees growing that I had no idea how they would grow in that manner and come up to that shape. They were very unique, like one grew up and came into a heart. And uh, it, I know that tree, being a, that type of cedar tree, can take a th several hundred years to grow that way, and yet it grew in such a short period of time. But it caused me great excitement and hope, especially in this dark, one of the darkest hours of my life in trying to go forward. Wow. Alfred Douglas Young. You told me I needed this book tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his his guide shows him after the uh this after Satan is disposed of, he sees the earth move and fold together from the four corners and then come forward. He says, the angel or the guide says, Look, I looked and beheld the new earth, having the appearance of the sea of glass, and upon it was a multitude of inhabitants and a temple of the Lord God. The angel said to me, Draw near to the temple. I did so, and he accompanied me. He conducted me into its lower courts, where I saw 12 baptismal fonts and the 12 foundations, which were of 12 different and beautiful materials, but as a whole, they were the solid foundation of a grand and beautiful temple. The angel conducted me upwards on the next floor of the temple, above the baptismal fonts. This part of the temple was constructed of different material from the lower courts. It was beautiful beyond my capacity to describe. There I was shown all the various rooms or departments of the, for the different grades of the priesthood. From this place, an angel conducted me up a stairway to what appeared to be the upper or highest story of the temple. It far exceeded in beauty and richness anything I had ever before seen. I can only compare it to very clear, pure glass mingled with gold. By the way, I changed the, uh, the graphic on Vision of Zion podcast to kind of show a building like this that you know just a, a a conception all these apartments had suitable accommodations for the uses for which they were designed including seats for those receiving endowments and for those administering therein or for people who might gather together for instruction and etc i saw in the upper court a seat or throne especially fitted for the sitting of jesus christ and of his father i also saw before this throne two pillars or two altars one about three feet high and the other about 18 inches high or about half the height of the other and he goes on and describes uh, more about the work that's being done as people are baptized and they move through the different levels through this temple until they appear before the throne of god in the temple so he closes with this enough was shown me in this temple to give me some idea of the great work to be done in the millennium and the vision closed yeah, my prayer as we leave the people tonight is just that, you know, I hope that our words and our understanding will help you to pray and understand your mission here and how you can play a role in these upcoming days and uh, understand them with hope in your eyes going forward. I want you to close with this this, this thing, Sean, that uh, one of our friends in our texting group asked you, you know, how can I obtain these blessings that are promised in the scriptures and what was your answer to her in short we need to claim them that you know many times we're given the holy ghost we're given the endowment we're given the initiatory or things and we think about these gifts that are given with this but um if we don't claim these gifts it's kind of like I think of my grandkids, and I have wonderful grandkids, but if I give them something that's too far past them, 
like if I gave little Eric a car and he's nine years old, it would be of no use to him. And he wouldn't have gratitude for it because he couldn't really use it. He might be of danger to himself or others. But, you know, as we get different things and we say, I'm so grateful for this gift, I claim this as, you know, because I've gone through these experiences, I've proved myself worthy. And it really does make a huge difference in your prayers when you say, I claim the blessings that come with the things that I've gone through, the initiatory, the endowment, the baptism. I think I'm definitely guilty of of not claiming what is available. As Elder Ugdorf said, we live below our privileges. And all, the Lord has, has prepared all these gifts for us, as you're describing. And maybe we think to ourselves, I can't claim that gift. Uh, I'm I'm not worthy. I'm not. Um, it's too much for me to to accept. That would offend us if we were gift, giving a gift to someone and they turned it away. Um, how much has the Lord offered to give us, and we're not interested enough, or we're not willing to claim it to receive it because we think that we're not um, at that level that the Lord is telling us we can be at that level and we can receive those things. I, I am sure that that would not be, um, it's not pleasing to him. And I can see that I have um, got to really think about that because the stuff we're being promised in the scriptures is just off the charts. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, in fact, um, we're, even though the scriptures say, I'm going to go here just a little bit, even though scriptures say, in the book of Psalms, and then Jesus says it, know ye not that ye are gods? We we don't like to equate ourselves with being able to become anywhere close to what God is, even though we're promised that we are joint heirs with Christ in the New Testament, one of Paul's writings. Joint heirs, not subservient. And in the DNC, he calls his righteous followers, his friends. So there's this there's this thing where, yes, we praise the Lord. Yes, we praise them. Yes, they are our Heavenly Father. But they're expecting us, as Jesus said, be therefore perfect. We're supposed to be striving uh, beyond our uh, conversion. We're supposed to be striving to emulate their characteristics. And the blessings, nothing is held back from us. Um, we're being told to, um, you know, embrace the glory of God. And, and I see this yeah. oftentimes, you know, I've got kids that have grown up and they've had children of their own and they are fearful being a first time parent and they worry, how can I ever do this? How can, you know, but yet we are still beside them to help them become a parent and to help them go through these trials. But sometimes, you know, I didn't feel worthy to become a parent when I be finally became a parent because I was worried about making mistakes all the time. And I finally had to claim being a father and that sacred role and responsibility of being a father. But then I had no idea what it was like to be a grandparent and to love these grandkids that way. And then I claimed it and I came into that role because I claimed it, even though I didn't feel worthy to be a grandparent or to be a father at the first step. 
So in closing, the only people who place limitations on our eternal progression is ourselves. Because as far as I can see, the Lord has left it wide open for us and is asking us to ask, seek, and knock. It's such a counterintuitive uh, you know, opportunity compared to our um, mindset that we are not supposed to um, receive and ask. We're supposed to confine ourselves. We're not good enough. I mean, that is Satan talking to us. That's Satan. That's the Satan that you described when he said to us, "Oh, you don't want to go down there. You're you're going to suffer. There's all this misery and problems, and and you just be better off staying as a spirit and not going down and being tested. You're you know, there's a if you can't have the plan, just stay here because it's just too much. And right. it's that you know fear. Whereas the Lord is saying it's all available to you if you just want it." And I'm giving it to you. And as I said before, what Sean gets from the Lord or what any of you get from the Lord is not holding anybody else back. There's an infinite amount of uh, good and blessings and taking up. There's not it isn't a uh, a limited resource uh, claiming all the blessings like Abraham did in the book of Abraham, chapter one, verse one in the Plurary Price. He desired the blessings of his father's. And claiming the blessings does not in any way limit anybody else's right to receive as much or greater than what we're being offered. There's no limit. So don't, it's, it's a, it is a hard, I got to say, Sean, it's a hard mental uh, cycle for me to break out of, to really think about it and, and claim it. So my wife about this. does such a great job of explaining this. I mean, she says, it's hard for me to accept who I was and everything until I realized everybody has the same gift. Everybody has the same opportunity. And if I step up to this, that I can help them see all the blessings that they can receive also. But she does it in such a beautiful way. The joint air part, I'm going to close on my end with this. I was taking a class by Eldon Ricks at BYU. And I remember I was 18. I was, uh, hopefully I'm farther along now, but I remember asking him in class, <clears throat> I said, <clears throat> I said, the Lord says in the scriptures that he'll give me everything. All, everything that there is, is mine to have. That's what the scriptures promise us. And I said, how can I have everything if he's promising the same thing to Sean, <laughs> to <laughs> someone else? Right. How can I have it all if if uh, there's a billion of us? And that's when he taught me, uh, because we're joint heirs. Yeah. And that's, exactly. we have it in common. And so I've never had to, I felt really foolish <laughs> after I asked that, but I was really in that, how can I have it all? You know, if if I have it all, Sean can't have anything. So that's where I was coming from. And boy, um, if you... the law of consecration should really switches around on that. If you follow astrology, you can see that we're constantly, new galaxies are forming all the time. Within those galaxies, there are many solar systems, and within those solar systems, there's many planets. And so it just keeps growing and growing, giving us opportunities. Sean, thank you for joining me for Isaiah 13. This has been a great discussion. I hope everybody 
at the end of this has felt uplifted and encouraged and hopeful. Thank you, Craig. Until next time, this is Vision of Zion.